And then here comes David Koresh with this long cockamamie story about being Cyrus and the Lamb and needing to die to bring about the end times. It, it was a lot. It was a lot. Welcome to A Popular History of Unpopular Things, a mostly scripted podcast that makes history more fun and accessible. My kind of history is the unpopular stuff, disease, death, and destruction. I like learning about all things bloody, gross, mysterious, and weird. But before we begin, a reminder to please support me on Patreon. Putting out episodes takes a lot of time, and your support will help ensure that the podcast keeps going strong. I appreciate any help you can give, and thank you so much for being a fan. On with the show. On February 28th, 1993, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the ATF, drove to a compound in Waco, Texas, known as Mount Carmel. I've heard it pronounced Mount Carmel, Mount Carmel, but I go with Mount Carmel. Their goal? To raid it. They had a warrant for them to search for illegally modified firearms, of which there were plenty, and to arrest the leader of the group who lived there, a man named David Koresh. David Koresh ruled over a splintered religious group commonly called the Branch Davidians. He saw himself as all-powerful, but it was more than that. He saw himself as the Messiah, the second coming of Jesus Christ quite the narcissist. And he's not the only religious leader in history to lead his people to their ultimate doom. I did an episode on Jim Jones and the Jonestown Massacre of 1978, so go check that episode out when you're done here. Lots of similarities, actually. Lots of parallels. So on a cold morning in February, Waco, Texas, ATF pulled up ready to ambush Mount Carmel, knowing that Koresh had a ton of weapons. They didn't want to give the Branch Davidians any chance to arm themselves before they could serve this warrant and arrest the leader. But in a terrible turn of events, Koresh was tipped off about the raid that was about to happen. ATF knew that David Koresh knew, but they executed the warrant anyway, and it was a disaster. A massive gunfight ensued, killing four ATF agents. But it didn't stop there because the raid turned into a 51-day standoff that involves the ATF, the FBI, negotiations, the hostage rescue team, local police, news media, and even family members that flocked down to Waco. But at the center of it all was David Koresh. It ended on April 19, 1993, when the FBI pushed in on Mount Carmel, flooding it with tear gas. But then tragedy struck. The compound was suddenly set ablaze, and the entire structure burned to the ground, killing David Koresh, but also 75 other Branch Davidians, including dozens of children and two pregnant women. It was an absolute, undeniable failure by the government to take down a dangerous man, and in the end, on both sides, over the course of 51 days, 86 people were dead. So what I want to do today is I want to give you a history of the Waco siege. I want to know how it got so far. Did David Koresh need to be stopped? Yeah, yeah, he did. Not necessarily for his beliefs, but because he was doing illegal things in his compound. He was also accused of sleeping with underage girls as part of his 
weird cult of personality, some allegedly as young as 10 years old. So there's no doubt that this man was dangerous and needs to be held accountable for his many, many crimes. But did the FBI and the ATF handle this correctly? Absolutely not. In fact, their mishandling of Waco led to even more division between the government and militia groups, especially when considered alongside events like Ruby Ridge, a similarly mishandled showdown that I'll cover in today's episode. So let's dive into the historical context, as we do, to get a better idea of who David Koresh was and how he became the leader of a group of Branch Davidians in a dusty Texas compound. Then we'll take a look, a closer look at least, at the initial raid and all of the events that led to the fiery conclusion when Mount Carmel burned down, killing most of the remaining Branch Davidians. And finally, we'll take a look at some of the after effects, including how this event directly led to the Oklahoma City bombings perpetrated by Timothy McVeigh on the anniversary of the Waco siege in 1995. So let's get started. First, we need to take a look at who the Branch Davidians are and where they came from. And to do that, we have to jump back in time and take a look at the Seventh-day Adventists, a sect of Protestant Christianity. Back in the early 19th century, that's the 1800s, a preacher named William Miller started to warn people that the second coming of Jesus was fast approaching. It would happen sometime between 1843 and 1844. Now, I know not everybody is religious, including me, to be perfectly honest, so to be thorough and inclusive, let me briefly explain what the second coming means, because it's the heart of this story and of the Branch Davidians' entire existence, to be honest. The second coming is a Christian and Islamic belief that Jesus will return to earth. When he returns, he will judge both the living and the dead. Those who died will be raised from the dead to be judged. What a terrifying thought. For the wicked, the second coming is bad, right? You're about to be judged, well, poorly for all the dirty, dirty things you've done in your life. But for the righteous, the second coming is awesome because it will usher in a new age of peace. The righteous, both the living and the dead, will be taken to heaven to reign with Christ for a thousand years and the wicked will be destroyed. And those who are not religious or, quote, rejected the word of God, will be cast into a lake of fire, suffering from everlasting shame and torment. Lovely. Now, nobody is supposed to know when the second coming will happen, but that it will happen at some point. So get ready. Back to the story. William Miller claims that he got his information from his interpretation of the book of Daniel. And when that, you know, didn't happen, they changed the date. And then they changed the date again. And the resulting disappointment led to disillusionment. Some stopped believing in the second coming of Christ altogether. Others, still holding on to Miller's ideas, claimed it was going to happen. It's just that the date was wrong. It's fine. It's still going to happen. Don't worry about it. And these people went on to form the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Side note. One of the defining characteristics of the Seventh-day Adventists is that they practice the Sabbath on Saturday, which is similar to Judaism, the original seventh day. But most Christian denominations, as you may or may not know, keep Sabbath on Sunday. Anyway, 
The Seventh-day Adventists grew and spread across the U.S. And in addition to practicing the Sabbath on Saturday, they also believed that faith alone can save your soul, the dead will be judged in the second coming, right? And most importantly for our story, that the second coming will happen after a particularly troubling time when there's a lot of crisis in the world. And the only way to figure out when is to study the Bible furiously and pick up on its clues, right? Like it's like it's a puzzle that needs to be solved. And to help uncover this apparently hidden message, God will use humans as messengers or prophets to help interpret the Bible or give us new insights on the day in question. Now, unlike William Miller and his followers, the Seventh-day Adventists didn't publish a specific date for the second coming. Therefore, they just had to be ready to go at a moment's notice. This teaching hit one Adventist pretty hard. His name was Victor Hutef, who believed that his church was too complacent. They weren't pious enough. They weren't studying the Bible enough. And they certainly weren't prepared for the second coming. Now, Hutef, who was super into the idea that only 144,000 believers would be spared from the apocalypse at the end of days, decided to take the most loyal of his Adventist followers to a place where they could study the Bible, prepare for the second coming, and practice in peace. And he chose a 200-acre plot of land northwest of Waco. But to be thorough, it's not the same plot of lands that the ATF agents raided in 1993. It's That one's purchased a bit later, but still, this is when they all came down to Waco. Now, Hutef named his property Mount Carmel after a passage from the Bible and got to work creating an Adventist stronghold where his followers, around 120 people at its height, lived a strict Christian life in preparation for the second coming. He named this group the Shepherd's Rod, and for all intents and purposes, it was an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist church. He also bought more land around Mount Carmel, so he clearly had ambitions for a big religious settlement down there. His own Adventist kingdom, if you will. And he even got his own printing press installed on site so that his sermons and his teachings could be printed and distributed to Seventh-day Adventists all around the country. But on the eve of America's entry into World War II... Hutef encountered a problem. Many of the able-bodied men in his ministry would be drafted, right? There was a compulsory draft. They didn't have a choice. Now, in my episode on the Minnesota starvation experiment, that was a fun one, I talked about how peace churches like the Mennonites, right, they had military exemptions. Those men were exempted due to their religious beliefs. So instead, they would go to work around the country. Some of them volunteered for the starvation experiment. But the problem for Hutef was that his little group down in Waco, Shepherd's Rod, right, wasn't a legally certified church. So his boys couldn't claim exemption due to religious beliefs. To combat this, Hutef reorganized his group around the Davidian Seventh-day Adventist Association. Davidian hints at King David and his throne. The idea was that when Jesus did return in the second coming, he would occupy King David's throne. And since the second coming was at the forefront of Hutef's mind, this connection worked well for him, right? So they became Davidians. Now, when Hutef died, age 69, February 1955, the Davidians were in crisis. Hutef's followers saw him as one of God's messengers. He had done so much for them in living a life according to their interpretation of the Bible and of the second coming. So his death was a shock to the community. Who's going to take over? And if you're sitting in your car right now listening to this or vacuuming the living room and you're saying, well, David Koresh, obviously. No, not yet. Cool your jets. He comes later. 
Now, there was no line of secession planned. I guess they never imagined a day when Hutef wouldn't be leading them, or they didn't want to face up to it. I don't know. But they certainly didn't want to abandon the mission of preparing for the second coming of Jesus. They didn't want to abandon Mount Carmel in Waco. So there needed to be a successor, and it ended up being his wife, Florence. Hutef married Florence when he was 52 and she was 17 which at the time, of course, raised eyebrows. But she worked as his right-hand woman, (laughs) right-hand woman, in the organization up until his death. And on his deathbed, ready for this? She claimed that he told her the date of the second coming. That's right. He was dying and he told her and only her when Jesus was coming. Apparently, it was going to be April 22nd, 1959, a few years away. Florence explained that Hutef was carefully studying the books of Revelation and Daniel and managed to puzzle it out, right? He found that magical clue that told him it was going to be April 22nd, found the actual date. The Davidians, of course, who had been planning for this moment their entire lives, allied under Florence's leadership and got to work preparing. One of the things they did to prepare was to buy a new plot of land in Waco a cheaper plot of land, and they could sell their current land for a huge profit because it bordered a lake and, well, it was good land. This new plot of land was called New Mount Carmel, and this was the place that eventually burned down in 1993. The money they got from the sale of their old lands, the original plot, was spent on building New Mount Carmel, but it was also spent in advertising the second coming. Remember, this is the day, the event that they had been preparing for for most of their lives. It was a big deal, and they wanted all of their followers and all the other Adventists around the world to know that it was coming and it was time to prepare. And since we're all still alive today and not burning in a lake of fire, we know that April 22nd, 1959 wasn't the second coming, right? And when the day came and went without incident, the Davidians knew that too. So did Hutef actually give her the date of the second coming on his deathbed? Probably not. It was more likely Florence's attempt at grabbing power. But either way, if she really was a prophet, she wouldn't have been wrong about the second coming of Jesus, right? Followers started to question Florence and Victor Hutef. Actual Seventh-day Adventists saw an opportunity to bring some of the Davidian separatists back to their church, which was successful for some of them. Many just left Waco and went home. Florence sold most of their land, keeping one small chunk alone for the 50 Davidians who wanted to stay. She ended up leaving for California. She got a job as an accountant, remarried some powerful business guy, and died in 2008. But there are still some Davidians in Waco. So who's going to take over after the Hutefs? One died, the other left. There were still some that believed in their group. They didn't want to go. They had spent so long preparing for this mission, and they weren't ready to abandon it. They still thought the second coming was, well, coming. Now, in the midst of all of this chaos, a husband and wife team stepped in and claimed that God sent them to lead the Davidians on their mission to prepare for the second coming. And they were Ben and Lois Roden. Ben Roden changed the name of the group from the Davidians to the Branch Davidians. He pulled the word branch from Bible passages, of course, and got to work preparing for the second coming. Again. Ben and Lois bought property in Israel, even, and tried to start moving some of their group over to Israel, where they'd start getting ready as part of the 144,000 who would be saved, right? Now, Ben and Lois had a son named George, who was, he was a character. He once ran for president as a Democratic Party candidate, printing campaign literature from Mount Carmel presses. He didn't get any votes in the primaries. Seriously, not a single vote. He later referred to himself as the King of Israel, 
the scourge of nations, and the deliverer of saints. He even tried to change the Waco property name to Rodenville. So, oof. when Ben Roden started to become ill in the late 1970s, George declared himself successor, which troubled pretty much everyone. Lois, sensing the chaos, focused her time in Waco instead of in Israel because she knew that she would have to take over once her husband, Ben, passed. Now, Jeff Gwynn writes it best in his book titled Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. Great book. Highly recommend you read it. Quote, Lois believed that she must succeed Ben. Now, in her early 60s, she understood that for many followers, a Branch Davidian leader best proved himself or herself deserving of primacy by receiving and then sharing some significant message from God, information that could only be revealed to a legitimate prophet. If Lois did that, that would negate her son George's constant claims that he had been designated as the leader. End quote. So in 1977, Lois revealed to everyone that God had spoken to her. She told everyone that she looked out her window at 2 a.m. while pondering the Bible, of course, and saw an angel fly by. And it gets a bit weird here with whether or not the Holy Spirit can be feminine and whether women can be prophets. So I'll yada yada to the point. She took over when her husband died on October 2nd, 1978. She managed to convince enough people with this story that a woman could be the Lord's messenger. She was a prophet and therefore she's the next leader. You see how this works? You needed spiritual legitimacy to become the next head of the Branch Davidians. God needed to have spoken to you before you could rule over the people. Now, what was cool about her, I I guess, was that she was super into proving that men and women were equal. She was critical of religious denominations that wouldn't ordain women. She wrote newsletters and even had her own printing about women taking leadership roles. She spoke to the media a lot about her revelation. She even called herself Bishop Lois Roden occasionally. She stopped calling her people the Branch Davidians, instead using the term living waters, which sounds more feminine. And you can guess, of course, where the inspiration for that came from. And then she focused on her son, who was actively trying to oust her from power. What a family. She ended up hitting him with a restraining order, so he had to leave the property. But Lois had a problem. She was getting older and she would need a successor. And if she didn't have one lined up, her son George would swoop in and take over. And he was, he was different, unhinged. He would be the doom of this little fractured religious group in Waco, uh, in Waco, who, I keep saying Waco, in Waco, who wanted to prepare for the second coming. And this, dear AFOUT fans, this is where David Koresh finally enters the picture. Now, David Koresh wasn't born as David Koresh. His name was Vernon Wayne Howell, and he was born to young parents, a 20-year-old father and a 14-year-old mother named Bonnie in Houston, Texas. And although this isn't super relevant to the story, I can't not talk about this. David Koresh's parents met when his dad was 18 and his mom was 12 years old and in the seventh grade. Seventh grade. He gave Bonnie a ride home one night, kissed her, gross, and they started dating. He proposed to Bonnie when she was in eighth grade, and her dad was, of course, very much against it, until she got pregnant in eighth grade at 13 years old. I can't. I just can't. She ended up being an unmarried single mother anyway because the dude bounced as soon as she got knocked up. 
Anyway, she was a Seventh-day Adventist. Bonnie did end up getting married a few times, but the second marriage is what stuck. This guy was 34, Bonnie was 18, still really suspect, and they got pregnant before their marriage, and Vernon's younger brother, Roger, was born. Now, Vernon, especially now that little Roger's around, not a great student. He was also in a lot of support classes. Uh, He had ADHD. So bullies teased him endlessly. To help, Bonnie decided to enroll Vernon and his younger brother, Roger, in Seventh-day Adventist school. And this is where young Vernon, remember, this is David Koresh, thrived. He started memorizing passages from the Bible. He watched nothing but Christian TV broadcasts. But as a teenager, he started getting into hunting, playing guitar, and, well, girls. He left school early to get a job and also chase after a love interest, but long story short and simplified, it didn't work out, and he was left broken and lost. He turned to religion for comfort, something he had loved as a child growing up at a Seventh-day Adventist school, and through a friend, heard of the Waker group. So, seeking stability and pursuing his reinvigorated faith with the Adventists, he went down to meet Lois Roden when he was 21. He wasn't immediately loved by everyone there, and it didn't help that he was a bit weird. He apparently mumbled quite a lot, and when he did speak coherently, he would talk about... Uh, how do I make this clean? Uh, he would talk about how often he made himself happy. And he also talked a lot about being a rock star. He filled his time at Waco doing carpentry, which he was actually kind of decent at, and also chauffeuring Lois Roden around. And it was during these moments in the car that Lois spotted potential in Vernon. Remember, she was actively looking for a successor, and it couldn't be her son, George, so she needed someone to coach, to mentor, to prepare to take over the flock and get them ready for the second coming. And perhaps it was because of his affinity for memorizing Bible verses, which impressed her, or maybe because his differences stood out to her. I don't know. But in the end, Lois chose Vernon. The rest of the group initially thought it was a weird choice. But Vernon was just happy to be so close to what many in his circle considered a modern-day prophet. Lois Roden was seen as a prophet. Now, he quickly caught up on the history of this little Waco group and of the threat that George posed on Lois's death, but their relationship was more than just teacher and student. They soon became lovers as well. That's right. Vernon in his early 20s, Lois in her upper 60s. Eh, to each their own. Vernon justified it with a Bible quote. And I went unto the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. They didn't have a son, though, of course, because Lois was very much postmenopausal by that point. Now, George, Lois's son, pretty, understandably pretty angry. Not because his mom was shacking up with the younger man. I'm sure he wasn't comfortable with that either. But because he knew that Vernon was the intended successor. He started coming back to Waco for long visits, despite having a restraining order. And his mom didn't really keep him away either. So George is just kind of around and in the picture now. Vernon, and again, this is our David Koresh, started giving talks to the people up at Mount Carmel. And since he had memorized so many passages from the Bible, his talk drew attention. People were interested in what he had to say. He spoke with ease, and he made sure everyone followed along. He never needed to reference Bible passages because he had them all memorized. And he drew links from the Bible to their modern equivalents. So, for example, a sword mentioned in the Bible meant a gun in today's world. And people loved his lessons. They loved that he can draw connections from the past to the present. He had a real knack for teaching. People started to fall in line behind him. Vernon, after only a few years of teaching his own lessons, 
quickly outpaced Lois. He was making moves to take power away from her. She was okay with it. George, who had been spending time there now for a couple of years, definitely took notice. So to try to remove Vernon from the situation, George reached out to the local district attorney and painted Vernon as the new Jim Jones. Literally, he made connections to Jim Jones, the cult leader of the People's Temple, who led his people to a mass murder-suicide at Jonestown in Guyana only a few years prior. And unfortunately for George, and probably everyone, the DA did not investigate. Vernon took some time out to go to Israel in 1985. He had just married a 14-year-old girl, lots of cyclical family dynamics going on here, and got her pregnant and wanted his first child to be born in Israel. He also wanted to investigate personally, where he and his followers and the 144,000 would warp to when the second coming finally happened. But he returned from Israel before any of that happened, and here's his story as to why. I'm quoting this from Jeff Gwynn's book again, because it's just a retelling of what David Koresh, Vernon, told negotiators during the siege. Quote, bit of a long one. While in Israel, he was taken up to heaven by seven angels who didn't have wings. Instead, they roamed aloft in Merkaba, a Hebrew term for celestial chariots described at length in the first chapter of Ezekiel. With Vernon on board, they soared past the constellation Orion, and when they arrived at their exalted destinations, Vernon was granted critical information, which he explained as three connected parts. First, for the first heavenly insight, Vernon was reminded of Cyrus, king of Persia. Babylon conquered Israel in 586 BCE and took many Jews into captivity. But when Cyrus and his Persian army defeated the Babylonians 47 years later, they freed the Jews, returned them to their homelands, and with the Persian king's own money, rebuilt the temple there. Cyrus is described as the Messiah, or as a Messiah of God, meaning one appointed by the Lord to provide a special service. Several messiahs are mentioned in the Bible, but Cyrus is the only Gentile so designated. Vernon Howell, David Koresh, was informed that he was the very same Cyrus, whose name in Hebrew, by the way, is Koresh. So Vernon must take Koresh as his name. David was added by the newly dubbed Koresh in tribute to the throne of David, which Jesus would occupy after he returned. So he took the name Cyrus, he added David to it, and now he is David Koresh. So, for those of you at home, we're going to switch to calling him David Koresh now, okay? No more Vernon, David Koresh. Second, and I'm going to paraphrase a bit more to speed this along. David Koresh was now about to be a father. And he, not Jesus, was the lamb mentioned in Revelations. He was going to be the one who could interpret the seven seals. And when you interpret and unlock the seven seals, initiates the end of days and begin the apocalypse. While horrific, this apocalypse was a preliminary to final glory, right? The return of Christ, the establishment of a godly rather than sinful world. Third, as the lamb mentioned in Revelations, David Koresh would be the head of the forces of God, and his job would be to overcome Babylon, who waged war on lamb and his followers. But since Babylon was no longer a thing, and David Koresh was keen on modern day interpretations, Babylon meant any government oppressing their faith. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Join us each week on the Well Beyond Medicine podcast as we explore the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. Listen and subscribe at NemoursWellBeyond.org, where you'll hear pediatric experts, researchers, and policymakers from around the world discussing ways they are revolutionizing children's health. I'm your host, Carol Vassar. Let's go. So to summarize, David Koresh went to Israel and he had a vision that seven angels brought him to see King Cyrus free the Jewish prisoners from Babylon and that he was Cyrus. He is the lamb who will be able to start the end times and usher in the second coming. And as the lamb, it is his job to wage war on Babylon, which in David's eyes is the government for their sins against their religion. But he was also supposed to lose to Babylon. This is important. He was supposed to lose the war against Babylon, the government, as commanded by God. Their deaths will usher in the end times, and they'd reemerge from death and live on in the new godly world with Jesus. Oh boy. So David Koresh's return from Israel marks a significant change with the Branch Davidians. And it wasn't just in his name going from Vernon to David. His followers noticed that he came back different, more confident, cocky even. And the baby, by the way, which they did have upon their return, they named the baby Cyrus, because of course they did. Now his followers were impressed. Consider that these Davidians over the years followed leaders who received messages from God, who were messiahs, prophets, right? And then here comes David Koresh with this long cockamamie story about being Cyrus and the lamb and needing to die to bring about the end times. It, it was a lot. It was a lot. But for a group of people who had been preparing their whole life for the second coming in the end times, this was a big deal. So David Koresh set about gaining more followers. After all, if he needed an army for the impending clash against the government to begin the end times, then he would need bigger numbers. He went around to Adventist meetings and converted members to his cause. He even went to LA with his guitar. Remember, he was into that as a teenager, right? And tried to make it as a rock star, hoping that stardom would bring more people into his church. I mean, come on, he's Cyrus, right? He's the Lamb of God, opener of the seven seals, bringer of the end times. Surely he could be a rock star in LA, right? Well, maybe not. But proselytizing was really successful, and in LA, David Koresh found a lot of his most devoted followers, and more importantly, their incomes, which would go to help the mission. The outreach extended beyond the United States, bringing in Adventists from Britain and from Australia. He was good at playing an audience. He would lead Bible studies, sometimes as a whole group, sometimes as individuals, hook these people in and invite them back to Texas. The end of days, you're going to die in my army stuff came later on once they were already indoctrinated. I mean, I'm, he would scare a lot of people away if he told them from day one that he needs them to fight and die for him, right? But there was still one problem standing in the way of him building this army to bunker down at Mount Carmel. George Roden. In 1987, the two had a showdown. Lois had passed away from breast cancer the previous year, and George took over control of Mount Carmel while David Koresh was away recruiting in L.A. But now that Koresh was coming back, the two had to square off, and George challenged Koresh to a duel. 
Not the Alexander Aaron Burr kind of duel, though. It was one that involved resurrecting the dead. Whoever could resurrect a body from the cemetery at Mount Carmel would be the rightful leader, and the other would have to abandon his claims and leave immediately. Now, David Koresh might have been a lot of things, but he knew that he couldn't raise the dead. He didn't claim to have any powers beyond being the lamb, opening the seven seals, bringing about the end times, right? And I'm not sure if George Roden thought that he could raise the dead, but that guy was pretty delusional, so who knows? David Koresh had no intention of going through with this ridiculous showdown. Instead, he went to the local sheriff, who, by the way, he was friendly with, and told them that George had illegally dug up a corpse, which is desecration of a grave. That's illegal. Koresh was told to get photographic evidence, which he then went and got. But the sheriff also told him that George had been carrying around an Uzi submachine gun. And so he needed to be careful. So David and his followers armed themselves, too. A confrontation ensued, of course, because you have a mentally unstable George wielding an Uzi and David Koresh and a handful of followers armed as well. George started shooting, Koresh returned fire, and it was a 45-minute shootout. Police arrived to break it up and Koresh and his men were arrested, though they they weren't charged with anything. The followers were acquitted, the jury was hung on Koresh. Meanwhile, George Roden had been brought into court on various charges, violating that old restraining order to stay away from Mount Carmel, and also nobody paying taxes on the property for like 15 years. So George, again, kind of unhinged, lashed out at the judges, telling them, I have to quote this because it's insane, maybe God will make it up to you in the end and send you herpes and AIDS and the last seven plagues and shove them up your, uh, let's go with butts to keep it family friendly. George was held in contempt of court and spent six months in prison. Koresh, rich from all that proselytizing and recruiting in LA, paid the back taxes on Mount Carmel and got court permission to take over the property from George, who wasn't supposed to be on it in the first place. George was never a bother once he left prison, by the way. He moved to Odessa, Texas, ranting to what small number of followers he still had around him. He later killed a guy, was found not guilty by reason of insanity, sent to a mental hospital, and he died there from a heart attack. So uncontested, David Koresh set about preparing for his mission. But before we talk about the failed ATF raid, we need to talk more about Koresh's personal failures. I don't just mean the exaggerated religious stuff. I'm not trying to judge too harshly someone else's beliefs. I can blame Koresh for dragging these innocent people into their deaths, but I won't look down upon people who just wanted to find something to belong to. That's a complicated, slippery slope, not willing to tackle it. But you know what isn't excusable? David Koresh's sexual abuse of children. Let's rewind a bit. When David Koresh took control of Mount Carmel, uncontested, he started engaging in polygamy. It was 1989, and he revealed what he called the New Light. He had this supposed revelation from God, because of course he did, that he was meant to have other wives, other than, you know, the 14-year-old that he married. First, he spiritually married all of the single girls at Mount Carmel, but then he moved on to the already married women. The marriages of his followers were dissolved, and he took their wives. They were no longer allowed to sleep together. Only Koresh was allowed to sleep with women at Mount Carmel. To these women, many of them, not all, but many, saw David as Christ. And so sleeping with him was a way of getting God's truth. Did they really believe that? Well, yeah, actually, many of them did. Because Koresh brainwashed them. 
These women thought that he was the key to salvation. According to one of his followers, women would stay up late at night in hopes that David would come by and bring them to bed with him. They saw him as God, and being with David was being alone with God. One of his followers, who did make it out before the end, Kathy Schroeder, said that, quote, He gave me a personal Bible study. The feeling was so comforting, like my God speaking directly to me. Sex was just part of it. The sermon made every touch not feel like sex at all, just a culmination of my relationship with God that I'd had all my life. End quote. Now, not all of his followers were cool with the new light thing, only sleeping with David Koresh, so some members defected, and some of those defectors openly challenged Koresh, but enough stayed that Koresh felt still powerful and in control of his flock. Now, if this was just consensual stuff between adults, I mean, it's not my cup of tea, but as long as nothing illegal was happening, eh, I mean, I guess it's like watching any other TLC show. But the issue is that he was doing illegal stuff because he allegedly slept with underage girls, some as young as 10. One of the girls, nine-year-old Heather Jones, who was rescued before Mount Carmel erupted in flames, had this to say about David Koresh. And this comes from an interview in the relatively new documentary called Waco American Apocalypse. It's on Netflix. Quote, He was hard on me about everything, down to the spankings, with a really big paddle. He would take me in his room and he would lay me over his lap. If I tensed up, he would take the paddle to my butt and be like, it's okay, it's okay, and he'd pull it up again. And he wouldn't hit me until I wasn't ready for it. And that was almost every day. A lot of people have told me that he was trying to groom me, trying to break me. Another girl, 15-year-old Kiri Jewell, had this to say, quote, David took me on a motorcycle trip with some of the guys to Mount Baldy in California when I was seven. On that trip, he took me for a ride down a mountain ski trail on the chairlift. There wasn't any snow, but it seems like we could see the whole world from up there. That was when David said to me personally that one day I would be one of his wives. End quote. And I will remind you that she was seven years old. I'm going to spare you the details, but when she was 10, David made moves on her and sexually assaulted her. Her mother was apparently fine with it. When 10-year-old Kiri asked about whether she and her mom were going to leave Mount Carmel after what happened, her mother's response was that they were never going to leave, so why ask? Mother of the year right there. Now, Texas Child Protective Services did investigate allegations of sexual abuse for six months, but couldn't turn up any evidence. The marriages to other wives, including children, wasn't on paper, so there wasn't any proof of any wrongdoing. But the allegations were still there that he fathered children with underage girls. And please don't forget that he married his actual wife when she was only 14 years old, and they had a baby soon after. Her parents, by the way, were Branch Davidians and consented to the marriage. So again, he married a child. There's definitely precedence here to suggest that the sexual assault allegations were very much real. Now, some of the survivors have testified that Koresh did father a lot of children by a lot of women. One woman said she personally helped deliver at least seven of them. So we know that it was happening. Now, even though the CPS case didn't amount to anything, Koresh knew his time was coming. Jeff Gwynn puts it best in his book, so I'll quote his words here. The forces of Babylon were on the move against the Lamb and his followers, and time was running out. When the end time came, he and the Branch Davidians were going to still be at Mount Carmel. 
Koresh announced, we may not get to Israel. The devil doesn't want us to go, so he is going to block it. It looks like persecution is coming, end quote. Now, these allegations did factor into the Waco siege, but not until the end. So let's take a look at what started this whole mess, including a prior incident with the FBI and a fringe group with illegal weapons charges. In August of 1992, the FBI raided a cabin in Idaho on a mountain known as Ruby Ridge. Randy Weaver, a self-proclaimed white separatist, his family and a friend named Kevin Harris were staying in a cabin off-grid in the northern part of Idaho, not far from the Canadian border, actually. It's about 26, 27 miles as the crow flies, meaning in a straight line. So why was the FBI there? Illegal weapons. But it's a bit more complicated than that. So Randy Weaver was a white supremacist who attended Aryan Nation meetings. To be clear, he wasn't a member of Aryan Nation, but he did share their values. He made friends with an undercover ATF agent at these meetings and sold that agent two illegal sawed-off shotguns in October 1989. The ATF tried to use that information to make Weaver an informant, but Weaver refused. So, the ATF pursued weapons charges against him, but Weaver didn't appear for trial. To be fair, the date was changed several times, and Weaver was given the wrong trial date. But since Weaver didn't show up for his trial, the court issued a warrant for his arrest. The U.S. Marshals were brought in to find him, and they concluded that Weaver and his family would likely resist violently if confronted. So they planned a stealth operation. They pinned him down in Ruby Ridge, and they started planning how they were going to get in there. Does this sound familiar yet? On August 21st, 1992, Weaver's dog outed the stealth surveillance team as they closed in on the property. They killed the dog, which is never okay. And then a shootout began between the U.S. Marshals and the Weavers. Sammy Weaver, the son, was shot in the back and killed. The family friend, Kevin Harris, killed one of the U.S. Marshals in response. Weaver, Harris, and the family refused to surrender, so the standoff continued. The hostage rescue team, the HRT, came in. An HRT sniper shot and killed Weaver's wife in the face as she was holding their baby. The bullet was apparently intended for Kevin Harris, but the sniper obviously missed his mark. The standoff continued for 11 days, and the bodies of the Jed were just, like, sitting there on the ground this whole time. Negotiators were brought in, and they managed to end the standoff. Harris, Weaver, and Weaver's remaining children all ended up surrendering. They were brought on trial for a variety of crimes, including the murder of the U.S. Marshal, but an Idaho jury acquitted Kevin Harris of all of those charges. Randy Weaver was only charged with failing to appear for the original firearms charge that started off the whole incident. The FBI and the other agencies responsible for this, including the ATF, were heavily criticized for their handling of this case, for their shoddy intelligence, for not ordering their surrender, you know, before shooting the dog and starting the firefight, for the sniper shots that killed Weaver's wife, Vicky, and more. None of the agents involved were charged, but Ruby Ridge became an example of the antagonism between the government and militia groups, and many put Ruby Ridge as the beginning point of really heavy and out-in-the-open anti-government right-wing groups. Ruby Ridge was a stain on the FBI and its handling of these fringe groups. They were still dealing with the backlash and the bad publicity from that incident when they were planning the raid on Mount Carmel. They were eager to prevent another firefight, especially if women and children would be involved. 
But only six months later, they led that disastrous siege on Waco against David Koresh. In 1992, ATF got winds that Koresh and his followers at Mount Carmel were illegally modding guns, and we know now, of course, that it was in preparation for the Second Coming. After eight months of investigating Koresh, it was clear that the Branch Davidians were turning semi-automatic rifles into automatic ones. You can't do that. Oh, and by the way, they didn't call themselves the Branch Davidians. That was the name that Ben Roden gave them, right? But it stuck, so that's what we still call them today. Anyway, in addition to the guns were some illegal homemade explosives, grenades, basically. What was unclear was the motive. Did Koresh want to attack? Was he selling the weapons? Was this going to be another Jim Jones, Jonestown situation a mass murder-suicide? Definitely go listen to that podcast, by the way. It's a good one. Lots of similarities. You'll like it. Now, regardless of motive, though, the weapons were illegal and it was ATF's job to take action. So a district judge signed off on the warrant and sealed it from public view. The idea was, of course, that ATF needed to serve this warrant on Mount Carmel with the element of surprise. The thing they had intended to do at Ruby Ridge and failed, right? With the kind of weapons stashed away in Koresh's compound, including 50 caliber rifles that could penetrate armored vehicles, the ATF couldn't take any chances and allow them to prepare for battle, just in case. And as it turns out, these were well-founded fears. Now, ATF at the time had two ways of conducting a raid. Either it surrounds the property and call out, giving a suspect a chance to come out peacefully, right? Or the dynamic entry method, bursting in before the suspects have chance to resist. The Mount Carmel raid, of course, was the second type, and it seems like Ruby Ridge was too. Now, without getting too deep into the details, the general plan was to surprise them nice and early, arrest David Koresh, find and remove the illegal weapons, and leave before a firefight could break out. They did not want another Ruby Ridge on their hands. Now, given the location of the compounds, this was never going to be an easy raid. There's no real way to sneak up on a property like this, right? There's one long road up to the front door, and ATF would need to use it to get there. The ATF did have some intel, though. They knew that David Koresh kept his weapons locked away. A few defectors had given up that information. And they also knew that every morning there was a compulsory Bible study with Koresh, and everybody would be together. And once that was done, all the able-bodied men would be outdoors working on a project. So, if ATF did their raid when everyone was together outside, and all the weapons were locked inside, it was their best chance of getting in there without a firefight, without bloodshed, or general disaster. They were going to conceal themselves in cattle trucks, hoping the Branch Davidians wouldn't get wind of what was really happening until it was too late, because a cattle truck is a pretty common sight in rural Texas. But of course, it didn't happen that way. And if you can believe it, it was a newscaster and a mailman that foiled the ATF's plot. The local Waco TV station, KWTX, sent three men off to cover the story. Though Mount Carmel may not have known the raid was coming, yet, the town of Waco sure knew, because there were ATF agents everywhere. The TV station wanted footage of the prisoners being taken away, the confrontation, all of it, right? But one of the cameramen got super lost on the way up to the abandoned house on the edge of Mount Carmel's land that the ATF used for their command post. So he did what anyone would do in the early 90s without access to GPS satellite data on their phone. He asked for directions. A postal worker. The USPS guy would certainly know where things are out in the sticks, right? He should be able to give him directions. 
The cameraman explained to the postal worker that he had to get there quickly to film the ATF raid on Mount Carmel. But the postman was David Jones, a member of the Branch Davidians who lived at Mount Carmel. So he rushed back, of course, to tell David Koresh about the impending raid. So there was an ATF undercover agent at Mount Carmel, Robert Gonzalez. He had been working on this for months, getting inside, providing valuable information to ATF. So when the postman David Jones told Koresh about the raid, the undercover agent knew. He told his superiors. He told his superiors that Koresh knew. Call it off, right? ATF's response, and I quote, I think it will be okay if we go quickly. The utter hubris. ATF plans this raid for months on the premise that they didn't want another Ruby Ridge. They didn't want to harm women and children, and they knew through their undercover agent that there were a lot of women and children inside. But ATF didn't have a plan B, and they didn't want to reschedule. They were so confident in their plan that they never stopped to think about what would happen if it went south. They had lost the element of surprise, but they didn't care, and they went along with it anyway. And we know that it didn't go well. ATF agents walked right up to the front door. It was eerily quiet. A lot of the agents knew it was going to be bad, and many didn't want to carry out the raid, knowing that they lost the element of surprise. But they were told to do it anyway, so they did. Mount Carmel was a haphazardly constructed compound with lots of windows, two stories tall, with a very tall tower in the middle of it all. The whole thing was on an incline, too, so anybody approaching from the road would be at a disadvantage. Mount Carmel had the high ground and lots of windows for snipers. Koresh told his people not to do anything. He would go outside and talk to the agents. He did, and told ATF to get off his property. So when ATF presented the arrest warrant, Koresh slammed the door in their face, and that's when the firefight began. I'm not going to go into all the details of it, the second-by-second play-by of the initial firefight. There are tons of documentaries and limited series TV shows and recreations that will give you good visuals for that. But by the time the firefight ended, four ATF officers were dead and a bunch of Branch Davidians too. And a lot of people were injured too, including David Koresh himself. A ceasefire was called so that wounded ATF agents could be rescued from the no-man's land growing outside the front doors of Mount Carmel. But the ceasefire didn't end it. The firefight turned into a standoff that lasted for 51 days. Now, after the failed raid, the FBI got involved. And with them came two different groups. First, we have the negotiators, whose job was to, you know, negotiate with David Koresh to get the women and children out and hopefully get him to surrender peacefully. The second group was the hostage rescue team, the HRT, specialists who focus on hostage rescue and also counter-terror operations. The sniper at Ruby Ridge, the one who shot Vicky Weaver through the face, he was hostage rescue team, HRT. Now, what you need to know about these two groups at Waco is that they did not agree on how things should be handled. But even worse, their communication was awful, detrimental, in fact, to the entire mission. For example, negotiators might tell David Koresh, assure him that they're not planning any nighttime raids, you know, don't worry about anything. They're trying to gain this guy's trust, right? Well, HRT would know that and then go do nighttime raids anyway, which undermines the entire negotiations process, which was difficult enough, by the way, because David Koresh was absolutely playing them. At one point during the standoff, Koresh told negotiators that he would come out with all of his people and surrender if he was allowed to broadcast a 58-minute sermon on the Christian Broadcasting Network. And once that was done, he would come out. 
followed by the kids, and then the women, and then the rest of the men. The Branch Davidians actually weren't cool with Koresh's plan because it looked like giving up, right? I mean, hadn't they been preparing for this exact moment? Didn't their leader tell them that they would have to fight and die against Babylon and then be resurrected at the end of days in Israel with Jesus on King David's throne? I mean, they'd been manufacturing weapons for this exact situation, but here's David Koresh saying that they would give up peacefully. It just didn't jive with what they knew. ATF didn't think that he would do that anyway. They assumed it would be another Jim Jones situation, a mass murder-suicide. But they planned for it anyway. So the broadcast went out, as, as promised, and the day came when David Koresh was supposed to walk out peacefully and surrender. And he never showed up. Another Branch Davidian called negotiators and told them that, quote, his god said that he has to wait. Koresh was playing them, and they knew it. But negotiations did manage to get Koresh to release a bunch of kids and women. Not his biological children, mind you, but other children. Kathy Schroeder, a diehard Branch Davidian, had a son who was taken out, and she was eventually persuaded to go be with her young son to protect him, so she survived the incident. But she told reporters that, quote, If they entered the building, we would all commit suicide. There was an actual grenade handed to me because I was the one woman that could have pulled that pin and killed the four or five other women in the room I was in. It wasn't a matter of how is this affecting me as a person because I'm not a person. I'm God's tool. End quote. They were ready to die. Now, negotiations looked at David Koresh as a con man and a narcissist. Religion was just the vehicle he was using to control these people and use all the women and girls he wanted at Mount Carmel, Right. The higher-ups at the FBI saw it differently. They thought that Koresh was raised to be this way, molded and created by Lois Rodin in a lifetime of Adventist religious study. His trip to Israel changed him. He truly believed he was the lamb and would usher in the second coming. But regardless of his motivation or what he really believed, he had to be stopped. It wasn't just the standoff. It was the allegations of sexual assault on minors. And there were plenty of children still in the building. So the standoff had to end, and it did end on April 19th, 1993. It was the culmination of an absolute breakdown in communication between the FBI, the hostage rescue team, and negotiations. They would constantly undermine each other, which only made David Koresh less trusting of the whole process. The longer it went on, the clearer it became that Koresh would not give up. So the FBI decided enough was enough, and they planned a tactical move on Mount Carmel. No more negotiations. Kicked out all the negotiators. They stressed that this wasn't an assault. They would just be bringing in their massive tanks and flood the building with tear gas, forcing people out. Well, they brought up their tanks and they crashed them into the building, literally opened up giant tank-sized holes on the first floor all around. And through these entrances, they threw in the tear gas. Snipers from the HRT were back a little ways and they were ready. The plan was to shoot them if they came out guns ablazing, right? Branch Davidians, of course, fought back because their compound was under attack. Remember, they had a massive stockpile of weapons because they were waiting for this day. The day when they would be attacked by Babylon, in this case the American government, would die for their cause and be resurrected when God came down to earth to sweep it clean of the unfaithful. At some point, flames erupted. The whole compound was soon on fire. From bird's eye view helicopter footage, it looked like the fire simultaneously started in three different places. The FBI said the Branch Davidians did it. The Branch Davidians, of course, blamed the FBI. 
a handful of people came out on the roof as the fire started spreading through the whole building and escaped. There was no running water in the compound, so there was no way to even try to put it out. The fire department showed up like 20-something minutes later, so they were no help. The FBI and the HRT were waiting, waiting for people to come running out to save their lives or maybe take out any hostels if, if that was the situation. But very few people left that building. And then there was an explosion, a fireball. The building crumbled in on itself. And still, nobody else was coming out. David Koresh and 75 others died in that fire. When it was clear that it was over and everyone inside was dead, when the building was more or less completely gone, the FBI moved in to look for any survivors and survey the scene. It was described as apocalyptic carnage. Rounds of ammo were popping off. Burnt Bible pages were raining down from the sky. There were skulls, half-burnt bodies strewn about the ground. The bodies of women, children, men, all looking for salvation, clinging to their religious beliefs, even as their leader led them to their deaths. It was over, but the death toll from the whole affair was staggering. Four ATF agents and 82 Branch Davidians were dead over the course of 51 days including 28 children. It was over, but it was a massive, massive failure. And it was seen that way, not just by the Branch Davidians, but by pretty much everyone. Congress came down really hard on the FBI and the ATF, as well as local law enforcement in Waco. The biggest problem was the miscommunication between all different government groups. Here's a good quote about it from a 1996 New Yorker article, quote, the tactical agents, whose job was essentially to heat things up, found themselves increasingly at odds with the negotiators, whose aim was to cool things down, end quote. It was a clash of cultures. The HRT and tactical units versus negotiations. And sure, the negotiators had a hard time ahead of them, but it could have been done. But the HRT and the FBI, just like they had at Ruby Ridge six months prior, operated with the notion that the only way to control the situation was through aggression. But they were dealing with a man who wanted a firefight. He wanted him and his followers to die to usher in the end of days. Did he really believe that? Or was he more like a Jim Jones character? Honestly, we don't know. And it doesn't really matter. But the legacy from Waco is that the government absolutely overstepped and messed up this raid. When the surprise attack was ruined, they should have turned back. But because of their hubris, they pushed forward anyway, and it cost them a 51-day standoff, and 86 lives. Two years to the day after Waco, April 19th, 1995, Army veteran Timothy McVeigh bombed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. It killed 168 people and injured 680 more. McVeigh was confounded on 11 counts of murder, conspiracy, and using a weapon of mass destruction. He was later put to death. McVeigh came to Waco during the standoff in 1993. He was one of many who were drawn there, angry about how the government seemingly infringed on the rights of its citizens. McVeigh was part of a growing right-wing militia movement that started with Ruby Ridge, continued with Waco, and still exists today. In a letter later published by the Buffalo News, McVeigh wrote that, quote, If there would not have been a Waco... I would have put down roots somewhere and not been so unsettled with the fact that my government was a threat to me. Everything that Waco implies was on the forefront of my thoughts. That sort of guided my path for the next couple of years. End quote. 
And here's another one, a letter sent to Fox News explaining why he bombs the Alfred P. Murrah building in particular. Quote, I chose to bomb a federal building because such an action served more purposes than others. Foremost, the bombing was a retaliatory strike, a counterattack for the cumulative raids and subsequent violence and damage that federal agents had participated in over the preceding years, including but not limited to Ruby Ridge and Waco. From the formation of such units as the FBI's HRT and other assault teams among federal agencies during the 80s, culminating in the Waco incident, federal actions grew increasingly militaristic and violent, to the point where at Waco, our government was deploying tanks against its own citizens. End quote. My point here is that Waco wasn't just an isolated incident. When combined with Ruby Ridge, it pushed more and more people to turn against the government, to see it as a threat to their right to own firearms, their right to own property, and their general sovereignty. Instead of preventing another massacre at Waco, government miscommunication and some really poor decisions led to the fiery end at Mount Carmel. And it didn't stop there, because Timothy McVeigh bombed the federal building in Oklahoma City as a direct response to Waco. He did it on the anniversary two years later. He wanted people to pay attention to his message, to look into Waco and Ruby Ridge and get angry at what happened. Because at first, people did side with the government and just assumed that Waco was another one of those situations with a crazy guy who kept his people locked up in there and needed to be dealt with. But Timothy McVeigh wanted people to know about how the government messed up. He did it by murdering innocent people in Oklahoma City, but it did get people to start paying more attention. The FBI did end up changing their tactics, but it was too late and the damage was done. The right-wing militia movement was only strengthened over time, contributing to an increasing divide that still exists in our world today. Thank you for joining me for this episode of A Popular History of Unpopular Things. My name is Kelly Beard, and I hope you've enjoyed the story of the Waco Siege. Thank you for supporting my podcast, and if you haven't already checked out my other episodes, go have a listen. You can also support me and the show on Patreon. Just look up a popular history of unpopular things, and join as a cannibal, an explorer, or a historian. Be sure to follow my podcast wherever you listen so you know when new episodes are dropped, and stay tuned to get a popular history of unpopular things. Uh-huh.